0: It's this thing on.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is what every young Christian needs to know about the Bible.
1: What every young Christian should know about the Bible.
0: There are 66 books in the Bible.
1: But it's one book altogether.
0: The Bible can also be called God's Word.
1: Or the Scriptures.
0: We communicate using words.
1: God communicates to us using His Word, the Bible.
0: The Bible is split into two parts. It has the Old Testament and the New Testament.
1: Old Testament is... Everything before Jesus.
0: The New Testament is after Jesus came.
1: Uh, there has been forty, well, forty or more human authors.
0: But God is the main author.
1: God was the main Man. mastermind. <laughs> mastermind.
0: What's in the Bible? Biographies, letters, songs,
1: prayers, poetry,
0: history, and prophecy.
1: The Bible comes in lots of versions. It's saying the same thing, just using different words.
0: Finding your way about the Bible is easy.
1: Every Bible has a... It's not going to say. In every Bible there's a contents page.
0: Every Bible has a contents page. The contents page has page numbers on it for each book.
1: Books have big numbers and small numbers. The big numbers represent the chapters like you would have in a normal book.
0: Like Harry Potter and the Hobbit and don't get through behind this year and I'm going to hit you with a Bible.
1: The small numbers represent verses which just break down the chapters into small sentences.
0: Big numbers are chapters and small numbers are verses, small sentences.
1: The Bible overall has one main message which is God's saving plan. For mankind.
0: Thank you for listening, and good night.
2: Well, it's good to be with you all again, and hello to our 95th campus. Would you pray with me? Lord, open our hearts and minds by your spirit to hear from you today and to understand what you've revealed to us in your word. Thank you for the gift of the word you have given us. May we become more familiar with it, even as it's like going to another country. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you've heard this before, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Now, many of you may know what that's from. That's from The Wizard of Oz. You know, the interesting thing is uh, going and reading the Bible, this bestseller that we open every week, is like going to another country. And when you read the Bible, you're not in Kansas anymore. You're not in Naperville, and you're not in 2014. It's a cross-cultural Experience. Have you ever been to another country? Let me just see a show of hands. Have you been to another country before? Can I see a show of hands? Yeah? Yeah. Wow, look at that, our international travelers. Have you ever been to another part of the United States that you felt like was another country? I'm not going to ask you what parts of the country that was. Okay, some, some of you might say, oh, that was Texas. Somebody say, that was Massachusetts. Somebody's like, Seattle. That's what it was. Could be any place, right? What did you do once you were there, though, to make it less strange? What did you do to get to know it? Especially if you're into another country. At some point, if you're in another country, you wind up having to do some kind of translation, whether somebody's helping you do that or you do the work of translating. It's a way of getting into the world of that new place. Well, the Bible that we have, our Bibles are in English, but the original languages of the Bible aren't in English, just like our Scottish kids were just telling us, and like our kids told us last week. So there are lots of translations that are bringing uh, uh, the Bible to us in uh, English, and what I want to do first in addressing the Bible as a cross-cultural experience is something that's kind of flyover territory, it's really big. And that is talk about translations. And I want to do that because for some people, the fact that there are many translations is kind of overwhelming. Or for some people, they wonder if because there are so many translations, does that mean I can't really know what the message is? So let's get that part of the way first. Yes, you can know what the message is. Just like the kids just told us, it's the same message in all of these translations. The same big message all the way through. But you will definitely notice a difference if you're reading these different translations. So the first thing I'm going to do is talk about the translations. Then I'm going to do something that's looking at a very specific example in a text that definitely requires us understanding what was going on then if we're going to understand what it means for us now. So Before I talk about how these translations work differently, another quick survey. So, I'm going to name a translation of the Bible, and I'd like you to raise your hand if you have or have had that translation of the Bible. You can raise your hand as many times as you want, okay? It's not only which one did you like best, but how many you've ever had. All right, so uh, King James Version of the Bible. Okay, all right. New International Version of the Bible. Okay, New American Standard Bible, English Standard Version of the Bible, the Living Bible, the Message, New Living Translation, New Jerusalem Bible. Hey, hey, all right, got about five people for that. Okay, all right, great, great, great. Now, some of you raised your hands several times. So you know that when you're reading these different Bibles, they don't always look the same. Well, what are the reasons why they might look differently to us? So I'm going to show you a slide in a second here. And this will show us the different ways that they go about translating the Bible and what some examples are. So let's let's have the first slide. All right. So what we call formal equivalence is a word-for-word translation. Literally, most of those words that you're going to have in the translations are exactly what the word was in Hebrew or what that word was in Greek or what that word was in Aramaic. So, the ESV is one example of that. New American Standards, another version. Dynamic equivalence is thought for thought. Now, sometimes that includes word for word, but... They're really trying to get you to understand the meaning, the big thought that's there. So sometimes it's not going to be word for word, and the word order might be changed, or or the phrasing might be very different from what the words were. So the NIV and the NLT, that's our pew Bibles here, those are dynamic equivalents. And then there's some, they're not really translations, they're paraphrases. If you paraphrase something, you're saying, well, here's what this basically means. And sometimes people might take a lot of liberties to convey the message because they're focusing on trying to make it as easily understandable as possible. The Living Bible is a great example of this because what Kenneth Taylor was doing was trying to have the Bible in languages children could understand. So he paraphrased it. Now, one of the most updated ones, most most contemporary ones, uh, and most probably best-selling ones now is uh, the message that Eugene Peterson did. So that's what they are. And it's nice for me to tell you what they are, but it's better if we see what they look like. So we're going to see the same verse, Matthew chapter 27, verse 26, and let's see how they read differently. All right, so let's see the ESV first. So then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So first notice Look how the word order is, but also, importantly, the word scourged, okay? Because that's going be, to be different in the next two that we see. That's going to be one of the biggest places where you can see a difference. So, scourge is a word you'll see in NAS. You'll see that in the NIV. I'm not in the NIV. You see it in the NASB uh, and the ESV. All right. In the NLT, let's see the same thing. So, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The phrasing is different. And notice, you don't see scourge there. You see this long phrase there, Jesus, flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Okay, flogged with a lead-tipped whip is not exactly what the text is saying. But but if you want to know what scourged means, this is telling you, flogged with a lead-tipped whip. So they're trying to give you what the big thought is there and take you into what it really meant. Because how many of us use the word scourge to talk about somebody getting beat? Right? Okay. What about a paraphrase? So in the ESV, we see that then he pardoned Barabbas, but he had Jesus whipped, then handed over for crucifixion. Now, a couple of things to notice here. This is actually the shortness of the three, And he just uses the word whipped, but because that's all he thinks it's important to talk about right there. But it's shorter because that's the only thought Eugene Peterson thought you needed to know there. So you see three different ways of talking about the same thing. But they're definitely very different. Now, a little story about me. When I went to, to college, I had this white... King James Version of the Bible that my aunt gave me when I was 12 years old. I had never even heard of any of these other translations. I remember being in Bible study, and then somebody quoted some verse, and someone said, is that an NIV? And I was like, what is he talking about? I didn't know what any of that was. Now, eventually, I became familiar with these translations, and then I, I thought to myself, you know what? It's very, very important for me? I really want to know what the words are. Because I want to know the Word of God." And perhaps when you think about the translation of the Bible, you think, "I want to know what the words are, because the, it's the Word of God, and I want what those words are." All right, let, let me put a, a French phrase up there. That's the language uh, that I've, I've, I've studied and known best. I took uh, most of my college. I, I took French and two years in high school. So there's the phrase "n'est pas." Some of you, maybe if you've taken French, you know what this means. It literally means, isn't it so? But that's not even a word-for-word translation of what it is. But if you put nespa at the end of a sentence, nespa means, isn't it so? Isn't she? Isn't he? Isn't that right? Don't you think so? But it's all that phrase. And you would translate it very differently depending on what else is around it. Now, the point I want to make by putting Nespa up here is that when we are having the Bible translated for us, what the translators are doing, they're trying to help us get at the meaning. And when people are doing thought-for-thought translations and paraphrases, they're strongly emphasizing getting at the meaning. They're not trying to violate the Word of God. Sometimes there have been very strong things that people have said about certain translations as if it's no longer the Word of God. No, I think this is a better way for us to think about it. Some translations are really very helpful for us, especially if we're trying to do study. And I think the ESV and the New American Standard are really good examples of that. If you want to do study and you're also really thinking about readability, the NIV or the NLT, very good for that. If you want to just get the gist of it, the message and the living are really good for that. And I'm so glad to see people's hands go up many times for all these different translations because having multiple translations is a good way for us to understand what's in the Bible. Different ways for us to get it, whether we're trying to look at it with a microscope or just get the gist of it. Meaning comes to us. It hits us in different ways. So multiple translations, I think this can be very helpful for us. So Don't worry about the fact that there are many translations. That is actually very, very helpful for us and helpful for us to get a richer sense of what the Bible means. And that's one of the main ways, of course, for us to have the world of the Bible come to us. You translate it from other languages into English. Because most of us don't have the time to learn Greek or Hebrew. I went to school to do it, but most of us don't have time to go to school to do that. So that's the narrow thing that I want to do, I mean, the big thing I want to do. The narrow thing I want to do, the specific thing I want to do, is look at two passages that talk about one particular uh, phrase here. So, and, 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 and the thing I want to talk about, the, the, the sort of topic I want to talk about is, uh, and this is probably not what anyone was expecting, I want to talk about circumcision. Now, it's not because I have a fixation on surgery for little boys, okay? But it's because... There are certain texts which talk about circumcision, and Paul's talking about it a lot. And you might think to yourself, okay, what is going on with all this fixation on this little procedure? What's going on here? So, I'm going to read two different passages. We're going to talk about the one passage first, then we'll talk about the second one, and I'll explain why it's important to understand what circumcision meant. Then, and how it helps us understand what it means for us now. So, the first text. Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. And and listen to how strong the language is. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. By faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, Paul seems to be a little upset about people thinking about getting circumcised. What is going on? Now, to draw back to the beginning, when God called Abraham to himself, said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and in you all the nations are going to be blessed. He said, so the sign of the covenant is males are supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. But what you notice, if you look throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there's hardly anything else said about it, except every once in a while, circumcised males. But they don't make a big deal out of it. And Jews weren't the only ones who practiced it. Even the Canaanites practiced circumcision. So how did it become a big deal? It became a big deal when, in the centuries leading up to the time before Jesus, when some people had the great idea, great idea. They said, hey, let's start exercising in the nude. Okay, so these are like the Greeks and the Romans. All right? Now, if the men are exercising in the nude, and this is mixed company, somebody's going to notice something a little different about certain people than from other people okay then they go well you look a little different from the rest of us right well so you knew who was a Jew and you knew who was a Greek or Roman and it wound up being the case that for Jews this became a basic ethnic marker so if you want to be one of us if you're going to be a Jew The males are going to have the surgery, which they were having anyway, but now it becomes a bigger deal to talk about that and to say that because they're circumcised, it's really kind of saying, and we are the people that obey God. All of what God has given us in the law, as a matter of fact, that's what we do. Now, when Christianity emerges, this emerges out of Judaism. Jesus was a Jew, and we see in the book of Acts, people get converted, and they eventually start having Gentiles become a part of this thing that was initially all Jewish. What do you do with these other people that are becoming a part of this? And what Paul's dealing with in Galatians is that there were people who said they were Christians, but they said, you know what? We're Jewish Christians, and we're really Jewish Christians. And if you Galatians, you Gentiles, really want to be a part of us, what you need to do is the guys have got to have a little procedure. Because that means you're committed to obeying the law but paul's whole point in galatians has been you don't become part of god's people by your commitment to the torah how well you obey it and if you think that you're going to become part of god's people that the way you become christian is by submitting to and agreeing to have this procedure Paul has very, very strong language here, doesn't he? He says, Christ is of no value to you. Christ is of no value. Why? Because you're basically saying, Christ isn't really how you become a part of the people. You become a part of the people by obeying the law. And Paul says, if that's what you think is is what's going to get you in, boy, are are you in trouble because you have to obey all the law perfectly which nobody does. And what Christ has done in coming for us is is he fulfilled the law. He did live it perfectly. And now we, who come to God through him, we receive the promises, the inheritance. We become part of God's people by believing in Jesus. That's what we do. So we become part of God's people just by faith. Not by Jesus plus something else. So the big question here is, what does it take to become a member of God's people? That's the question. That's what Paul is dealing with. And today, of course, you don't hear people giving messages saying, now, if you want to become a Christian, here's how you become a Christian. You believe Jesus, and we happen to have a clinic on site, right, for the males, that's not what happens, right? But you know what does happen sometimes? People in some traditions might say, it's Jesus plus something else. So here's an interesting thing to ask yourself. When you think about what it means to be a Christian and to become a Christian, do you think that it really is Christ alone, or do you think it's Christ plus something else? Are you tempted to think that it's Christ plus something else. It has to be Christ plus something else. It's an important question for us to ask. And actually, I'm going to get to say a whole lot more about that in week five, actually, in our week about contradictions. So that is a negative example where Paul is talking about circumcision. The second text is in Colossians chapter 2, and Paul's not negative at all about circumcision in Colossians chapter 2. So one of the things we have to recognize here is that Paul wasn't on the war path against medical professionals, okay? That's not what he's thinking about at all. It's not what he's thinking about at all. He's against the idea of saying that that means of becoming the people, which means by obeying the law, that somehow you have to do something extra. He says you don't. You just receive Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it's very, very interesting. He talks differently about it. Verse 11. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. What is he talking about here? What does he mean about by, by circumcision in this text he's talking about cutting now right some kind of cutting is going on what is this and he's not against the idea of circumcision here well he's not talking about circumcision now in any literal way He isn't saying, remember that clinic I told the Galatians to worry about? We've got a new one. It's not what he's talking about. Now he's saying, here is what has happened to you if you have become a Christian. Here is the work that God has done in your heart once you've become a Christian. Something's been cut out, in a sense. What does he mean, cut out? out? Well, you know, Paul, in some translations, you have flesh and spirit. What does he mean when he says flesh and spirit? He doesn't mean this. That's not what he's talking about. What he means is life lived apart from God. The sinful nature that can't obey God. That's what he's talking about. And he says that here that when people come into the faith... When you become part of God's people, what happens? You have a spiritual circumcision take place. God, by the Spirit, it's like he's cutting out your sinful nature and throwing it away. And now you're someone new. You're not who you were before. It's as if Paul said, you want to know why the gospel is good news? Here's why the gospel is good news. You used to be a person who, in your spiritual uncircumcision, you couldn't obey God if you tried. And you were separate from God. But now, when you come to God and you believe, God, by the Spirit, cuts something out of you and makes you a new person, a person Who is transformed. So, the question that is being addressed here is what happens as we become a part of God's people? What happens when I believe? What's God doing in me when I believe? God's changing you when you believe. And Paul is using circumcision as a metaphor, as a symbol to explain what happens there. A question for us to ask here is, what do you believe happens when a person becomes a Christian? What were you taught? What do you think? What do you think about your life? What kind of person do you think you are now that you're a Christian? Do you think that what we learn is only interesting information? Or does a transformation occur? If that transformation occurs, What do you think God is doing? What do you think is possible for your life? What might God be willing to do in your life? What has he done? What will he do? Very important question for us. So with this specific example, if we don't understand how important circumcision was to certain people and how it all of a sudden created a huge controversy... We might have some idea of what Paul is talking about but we won't really get it. We won't understand. I mean, Why would he use this as an example of transformation? Well, then because they knew that this is part of being a Jew. This is part of what you do. This is part what sets you apart. You're doing something but now you're saying God is doing something and doing something greater than that. It helps us to go into that world, and then to bring it to our world in our day so that we understand our life as Christians. Indeed, engaging the Bible is truly a cross-cultural experience. And it takes patience for us to do the work to learn what's in here. But it's important that we do that work coming to church and listening to sermons, going to Bible study, reading on our own. All of that's very important, and it takes time. And sometimes you might find yourself tempted to do one of two things. And I want to say that we should avoid these two temptations. And the temptations that can also happen to us when we go into any foreign country, actually. The first temptation is this. You encounter something in a foreign country, and you don't immediately get it, and you think, you know what, I don't need to spend any time on that. I'm just setting that aside, and I'm going to just go about my business and have my abbreviated cultural experience in this place. That's like in the Bible saying, I want to treat the Bible like a buffet. I'll take some of this and some of this and some of this, and the rest because I'm not quite sure what's going on. Uh, it's not, probably not that important for me. We shouldn't do that. We should... Have the patience to work through those harder things. A second temptation is sometimes if you go to another country and you don't understand why they do what they do, you could be tempted to say, you know what I'm going to do? Because even though I don't understand this, I'm going to just impose my American point of view on this and just say, this is what it is. Now, you know, I'm going to act like a real tourist is what I'm going to do. Or as the French would say, touriste. When they, that's, that's what they mean when they say that. We have to be careful when we're reading the Bible and we don't under, it's understand something or we're not taking the care to make sure we understand something well enough that we don't just automatically think, I've got it figured out. And I'll just impose what I already know and believe on this and that settles it. We want the Bible to teach us We want to actually know what's there. It's God's word to us. So we should resist saying, I'm going to make it fit my mold, rather than saying, God, what's your mold that you have for me? When we encounter the Bible, you're definitely crossing into another context. And when you come back from a foreign trip, even if you act like a tourist, really you're never the same again. But you are still the same person. This is what happens when we encounter other worlds. We're changed, but we're still the same person. This is definitely what happens when we encounter the Bible. We have the same identity, but now things are going on within us. And hopefully those things are making us more and more into the people that God wants us to be. Reading the Bible, it's not Kansas, it's not Naperville, it's not 2014, but it's a world that we can engage. When we engage this world, and and we've spent a lot of time doing this, it is one true adventure. And really, it's an adventure for all of our lifetimes. I hope you'll be willing to dive into that adventure. Will you please rise with me so we can pray together? Lord, thank you that though the Bible is another world to us, it's not a world beyond our ability to understand. Thank you for the work of those who've done all the hard work of reading the original text and putting together these different translations. Thank you for that, the blessing of those translations. Lord, thank you that Though there are things culturally that happened years ago that may seem strange to us, those aren't barriers to us, impenetrable barriers, but it's possible for us to actually grow in understanding of what happened then and, and understand what that means for us now. Lord, help us to be people committed to engaging your world and your word, committed to to knowing what you've revealed to us in this word and committed to being people who, though our identity remains the same, we're people who are constantly changed more and more into the image of Christ as we dive into this wonderful word, this cross cultural word you've given us. We face the name of Christ. Amen.